Good evening. Please turn with me to the book of Psalms. Psalms, chapter 136. Psalm 136. Hear the word of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods, his love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, his love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, his love endures forever. Who by his understanding made the heavens, his love endures forever. Who spread out the earth upon the waters, his love endures forever. Who made the great lights, his love endures forever. The sun to govern the day, his love endures forever. The moon and stars to govern the night, his love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, his love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, his love endures forever. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, his love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder, his love endures forever. And brought Israel through the midst of it, his love endures forever. But swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea, his love endures forever. To him who led his people through the desert, his love endures forever. Who struck down the great kings, his love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, his love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, his love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, his love endures forever. And gave their land as an inheritance, his love endures forever. An inheritance to his servant Israel, his love endures forever. To the one who remembered us in our lowest state, his love endures forever. And freed us from our enemies, his love endures forever. Who gives food to every creature? His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. I don't believe there is a Westminster Larger Catechism in the Trinity Hymnal, because I think there's one in the Psalter. Is there one in the Trinity Hymnal? Does anyone know? I don't believe there is one in the back. I think it's just the Westminster Confession of Faith. But I'm going to read to you the seventh question of the Westminster Larger Catechism. I don't, it is printed in the bulletin if you still have it from this morning, but it's okay if you don't. No worries. Here it is. What is God? God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection. All-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. Tonight we are looking at Psalm 136 and the Westminster Larger Catechism, Question 7. The topic that I would like us to focus on is the immutability of God, 
the immutability of God means his unchangeableness or unchangeability. That word is mentioned in the, the question that I just read to you, the answer that I just read to you. Now, admittedly, my sermon will be a little bit more topical than it would be uh, exegetical on Psalm 136. I hope you will forgive me for that. But uh, I think it's important. The immutability of God is a very important doctrine, and I would like us to consider it. It undergirds all of the other attributes of God. So if you think of God's uh, omniscience, it doesn't change. If you think of God's omnipotence, it doesn't change. If you think about God's word, it doesn't change. Or his knowledge, it doesn't change. Uh, God's faithfulness doesn't change. His covenant doesn't change. His promises don't change. And importantly, in Psalm 136, we find that his love endures forever. It does not change. I would argue that throughout Scripture, not only is the unchangeability of God taught in Scripture, but it's also assumed throughout the Bible in places you may not even think about it. For example, one of my favorite parables is the parable of the prodigal son. And when the young son, who has squandered his father's wealth in wild and reckless living, comes to his senses, and he says, my father's servants eat better than I do. He turns, and he, and he goes home, and what is he thinking? He doesn't, text doesn't sell, say it, but I would argue, at least somewhere in the back of his mind, he's thinking, maybe my father's love hasn't changed. Even in that passage, you, you kind of get a sense of the unchangeability of a father's love. We sing, in great is thy faithfulness. There's a line that says, thou changest not. So it's, it's throughout the Bible. It's in many of our hymns. Tonight, not only do I want us to talk about what, or for me to explain, what, what is God's immutability? I want to speak about that. But then, and what does Scripture say? But then I would also like us to consider, why is that important for our loves? Or our love life. I don't just mean your romantic love, but all of our loves. How, how, how does that relate to our loves? So first, God's immutability. Then, how does that relate to our loves? First, God's immutability. Now, in this passage, God's unchangeable love is throughout, throughout the entire passage from creation all the way up until this, the time this psalm was written. I couldn't find an exact date. I'm not sure that people know exactly when this psalm was written. Some people think it was after the exile. Some people potentially may think it was before. There's no hard date. We don't know. But the first few verses are giving thanks to God just for being God. He's the God of God. He's the Lord of Lords. He's done great wonders. But then it moves into his creation. So first, we're giving God praise for his being. But secondly, we're, through verses 5 through 9, giving God praise for his creation. The classic doctrine of God teaches that God did not need us. He didn't need to create. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't feeling sorry for himself when he created. He didn't need his creation. But he created as a manifestation of his glory. By the way, he didn't change when he created. He did not take on a different attribute. Uh, Rather, he displayed his glory. But 
he did not change. His being didn't change. And his love didn't change. Verses 10 through 15 speak of God bringing out Israel, his son. Israel is a son, you might say. And God is bringing them out of Egypt. Verses 10 through 15, which, by the way, it says that it cost the death of the firstborn son. Uh, I forget which verse it is. It's, it's in there. Uh, verse 10. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. With great plagues, a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Verses 10 through 22 speak of God's leading his people through the wilderness, bringing them into the promised land, even though his people were rebellious. His son was a rebellious son. Even though God, after God had brought them out, with great power and great might, displayed his glory, redeemed them, not because they deserved it, but because he wanted to show his grace. Even after these great signs had been performed, Israel still rebels, but God brings them into the promised land because his love endures forever and he's unchangeable and his promises don't change. Then verses 23 through 26 end this psalm speaking of that God's love is toward us in our lowest state. He rescues us from our foes in verse 24, and he even brings us food when we need it in verse 25. And the proper response to this whole, this whole psalm ends with, we are to praise God. We are to give thanks to the God of heaven for all that he has given to us, both in creation and feeding us and in our redemption. Now, in addition to this psalm teaching the unchangeability of God and his love. It's also taught in many other places in Scripture. Let me give you some of these places. Malachi 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. James 1, 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Psalm 102, verse 27, but you are the same and your years have no end. And in the New Testament, Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In addition to God's unchangeability, there's related attributes that you should be aware of. I'm not going to, in, to go into them into detail, but... God is ase, he's independent of his creation, he doesn't depend on us, I've mentioned that previously. He's not composed of various parts, and what we mean by that is that God doesn't just have justice or have love, but he is love. His being and his attributes are one. I could go into more detail, but I won't. He's, he does not have different states of being. So he's impassable. He does not go through emotional changes. He doesn't have emotions. Uh, we have emotions. I know Scripture speaks of him becoming angry. I know Scripture speaks of him um, as compassion. But emotions are things that belong to created beings. So we have, we're happy one day. We're sad the next day. We are, um, you know, we're excited, jubilant one day. We're, we're not the next. God does not have these emotional states like we do. There's a, a movie called The Two Popes. I'm not sure if anyone has seen this recently, but 
the reason I bring this up is because this doctrine that God is unchangeable and all these related doctrines have been part of the Christian tradition. Tradition is not the right word, but biblical teaching for millennia. But recently, over the past 100 years or so, or 200 years, it's become common for people to deny these basic things about God. So in the movie, Two Popes, there's Pope Benedict, I believe it's the 16th, and he's speaking with a cardinal who will become Pope Francis. And this is what the cardinal says. He says, nothing is static in the universe, not even God. And Benedict says, God does not change. The cardinal says, yes, he does. He moves towards us. Benedict says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Where should we find him if he's always moving? And the cardinal says, on the journey. So the reason I'm bringing that up is to show you that even among the Catholic Church, there, there's been a shift away from it, that God does not change. Some of the common objections, very quickly before we move on, some of the common objections are, in Philippians 2, there's that verse in Philippians 2, verse 6, speaking of Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Modern theologians have said when Jesus emptied, when, when the Son of God emptied himself by taking on flesh, they say, well, he, he subtracted his deity. He stopped being God, and therefore he changed. That's not what the verse means. God did not cease being God when the Son of God took on flesh. He added humanity so that you have two natures, a human nature and a divine nature, inseparably joined together into one person. God did not change when the Son of God took on flesh. He also when Jesus Christ died upon the cross, God's being did not change. There are scripture passages that people use to try to refute it. Very quickly, let me mention some of these. If I can get the page, hang on one minute. Some of the verses are Genesis 6, 6, the Lord regretted that he made man on, on earth and it grieved him to his heart. Jonah 3.10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he, said he would not, that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The one that I would like us to focus on for a moment is 1 Samuel 15.10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he's turned his back from following me, and he's not performed my commandments. People look at these verses and say, see, the Bible says that God changes. He changes his mind. He changes in relating to us. But there have been many good answers to these passages. And the first thing I would say is that Scripture interprets Scripture. The passages that are unclear, such as these, should be interpreted in Scripture by those that are more clear. And we have an abundance of other clearer passage, passages that say very, very clearly that God does not change. Even in that same, that same chapter, 1 Samuel 15, Samuel later goes on to say this. Samuel said to him, verse 28, 
The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel, meaning God, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Even in that very same chapter, it says that God is not a man that he should have regret. So how do we understand these passages? Well, there are many explanations, but one of the explanations is that God is using human metaphors for, to, to condescend, to stoop to a level that we can understand, not understand, it's not saying something about his being, but in verse 12, for example, in verse 12 of our passage, it says that God with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm brought his people out of Egypt. Does that mean that he has a physical hand or a physical arm? No, those are metaphors for our understanding of his might. Perhaps one of the better explanations, in my opinion, although I have not studied this in too much detail, is that we change. We change in our relationship to God. We go from a state of innocence to a state of sin. We repent of sin. Uh, When God breathes into us the breath of life, we embrace Christ. We go to a state of grace. And one day we will go to a state of glory. Those things, we change, but God does not change. His being does not change, it is the same. Having said all of that, why do I focus on this particular aspect, his, this attribute of God tonight? Because I think it tells us something that we need to hear, particularly in learning to love. Non-Christians and Christians would, I think, would agree that one of the basic human needs that we have is to love, to give love, to receive love. This is a very basic human need that just about everybody has. Even if, even if you have grown up with wonderful, godly parents, everyone needs to give love, to receive love. It's a basic human need. Of course, if if a, a child comes from a, a broken home or a, an abusive home or a neglectful home, I think non-Christians and Christians would agree that it does harm to the child and that they will, in some sense, that need to give and receive love will be intensified in that child's life. I don't think I'm saying anything that should be dispute or not disputable. I'm just saying I think that's common assumptions that people have. If I were to support that in Scripture, I would say there are places that Jesus talks with a woman who's had five husbands. I think there's this need that she has uh, for love. I think there is a need in Jacob's life. Jacob, I think, doesn't just love Rachel. I think in some ways he idolizes Rachel in that passage. But having said that, the reason I'm, I'm highlighting our need for love is that because immediately something gets in our way, as Christians even, in our, in our search for love, to give and to receive love. What mainly gets in the way is that we change. We change. Everything about us is changing. We grow up. Our bodies change. If you have children, you, you know how quickly their bodies change. They grow. Uh, we expand this way, maybe not even the way as we want to. I wish I had expanded this way rather than... But uh, we change. 
And we never stop changing. We, we can't find, the, 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 the point that I'm trying to make is that we cannot find any object of our love in this life that doesn't change. That's the point of our loves. We're, we're on a search because of sin. We've been plunged into darkness and part of the consequences of sin. We chiefly need, our greatest need, is to be put right with God, to be forgiven of sin. I'm not denying that at all. But an additional consequence of sin is that we, we search for love throughout our life. Even in the best of marriages, the, the man changes, the woman changes, we change. There's no rock-solid, unchanging object of love in this life. That's, that's the point. Our environment changes, our laws change, our governments change. Increasingly in this world and in this day and age, people like to make changes to their body that previous generations would think are crazy and ridiculous. We all change. And we like to pretend that we can, we can control our lives. But the point is that we have no lasting object of love that will endure forever unchanged in this life. We cannot be found here. Also, another thing gets in our way, that whatever you try to achieve in this life, whatever you try to build in this life, if you try to build an object of love, that too will change, and it won't last forever. I was thinking of the the young people especially, and I think I would, I would say that many, for, for men, it's common when they grow older to put their lives into their careers. It's common for women, perhaps, maybe I'm stereotyping, to put their, their heart and soul into their family. But even these good things given to us still change. Uh, it changes all the time. I think there's that hymn by Isaac Watts, which is... Um, our God, our help in ages past. Our God, our help in ages past. And there's a, a line that says, time like an ever-rolling stream bears all of its sons away. No matter what you put your object of love in, in this life, it will change. So isn't a better solution for you and for me not to put our main object of love, not to find this object of love here in this life, isn't a better solution to ask God to give us a love that is unchangeable. Isn't that a better solution for, for you and for, I, for me? Part of my concern is that I want you, no matter what stage of life you are in, to have a, a love life, I don't just mean your romantic love, but all your loves, including your romantic love, that isn't shakable. But if you, if you love the things of this life with a degree and an excess that belongs to God alone, it will get shaken. And what I want for you and for me is for those loves to not be shaken. How do you do that? Where do you, where do you put your, your, your love? Where do you, where do you seek to get love and where do you seek to give love? And isn't the best solution not to put our ultimate loves here in this life, but to put our love in something that is unchangeable, is immutable, endures forever? Isn't that the solution? But here's the final problem that I would have us to consider tonight with 
the predicament that we're in as sinful, fallen creatures? It's this. It's not us. The problem actually and the solution is God. Because people often say, oh, I believe in a God of love. And they're thinking it's a God like Santa Claus on Christmas Day. But the problem with that is that the kind of love that we find in the Bible and the kind of love that we're speaking of when it says his love endures forever is a jealous love. You you realize that in this chapter that we read, when we say his love endures forever, in the same breath as we say he struck down the firstborn of Egypt. (laughs) This is a love that has done, by unbelieving standards, terrible things. What we find in the Bible is not a half-hearted love of God. We find a God who loves with an all-consuming love, a holy, jealous love. If I were to give an analogy, and I know analogies are imperfect, so don't read too much into it, but if if a man cheats on his wife, he's been married, and a man cheats on his wife, the scriptural teaching is that the woman has biblical grounds for a divorce. Why do we allow that? Why why do we read scripture to say that? It's because the nature of marriage and the love between a man and a woman in the bonds of marriage is a jealous kind of love, a love that brooks no rivals, rightly so, a love that says, I belong to you and you belong to me and no other. It's a jealous love. Of course, when, when we speak of Christ's love for the church, and marriage is, is in some ways the metaphor, and Christ's love for us is the reality. It's, it's the thing which is what we are to, to mimic our marriages upon. But the point I'm trying to make is this, that God's love is a all-consuming, jealous, holy love. And when people say they believe in a God of love, I don't believe they understand the nature of biblical love that God displays to his people. So for example, God's love endures forever, but his justice also endures forever. That's the point when we say God is an unchanging God. His justice endures forever. And so the same God that in love and for his glory created Adam and Eve in the garden, that same God cast them out of the garden. That same God who created the world also flooded the the world. That same God who was with, in his presence, the temple and the tabernacle would strike down Nadab and Abihu and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the kind of God that we are worshiping. And that's the kind of God who doesn't just have love, but is love. So you see how this could be bad news. And the, and the, the problem, <laughs> this is why it's a problem, is because you have a God of love. But you also have, as a a non-believer, I'm speaking of non-believers, have fallen into sin and shame and guilt. And yet God is holy, that we cannot hide from him because he knows everything. He's omniscient. You can't run from him because he's omnipresent. You can't change him. You can't negotiate with him because he's immutable. And you cannot beat him because he's all-powerful. That's who God is. As we interact with our non-believing friends, 
I think we, we need to bear that in mind of who God is. And if there's one thing, if there's one thing that I want us to take away tonight, it is simply this, that God is not like you. He's not like me. God is wholly other. He is holy, holy, holy. Yes, he is a God of love, but it is an all-consuming love, a love that demands perfection of those who have been united to him by faith. It is a good thing. It is a good love. It's a, it's a benevolent love, but it is a jealous love. Part of the minister's responsibility is to prepare people to meet God, not the God of their imagination, but the real God, the God of Scripture. That's part of the duties of a minister. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the perfect expression of love who took on flesh and came into our time. He's given us everything that we need. Christ is the glory of God, the holiness of God, the perfection of God. And in him, we see that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The same God of love would send his son to die on the cross for our sins. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The perfect expression of his love is found in Jesus Christ submitting himself unto death for you and for me. It's a costly love. There was no other way for us to be redeemed. He could not, you might say, we could not be united to him without being destroyed. The problem is we would either be destroyed or his son would have to die. And in love, Christ died for us. That's how, how much he loves us. That's, that is how great, that is how That is the extent. That is how far he would go to love us. And it is a a great love. But it is an all-consuming love. It is a holy love. Tonight, I want you to be awed by the cost that Jesus Christ went through to purchase you, to be united to you and to me. That's what I want. I want you to have a life that your loves are not shaken. That no matter what comes your way, ultimately, you are not shaken. Your loves, who you love in your life, your family, your wife, your spouse, your children, I want that, those loves to be secure. But the only way, the only way that those loves will not be shaken is if your ultimate love is in something that is eternal and unchangeable and immutable. So I want you... Put your ultimate love in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you and praise you that you are a God that does not change. And I confess, even tonight, as I have briefly outlined and sketched that you are a God that does not change, I confess that there are so many profound implications of your immutability that I have barely even scratched the surface. I thank you that 
You, a holy God, a holy, holy, holy God, that is also a consuming fire, that is a jealous God, in love sent your Son to die upon the cross for our sins. We pray that we would treat his death as a holy, solemn thing, that it would not be taken lightly. We pray, too, that we would put our trust and our faith and our love in him and in you and in your word. I pray that through this, through your immutable, unchangeable love that endures forever, that we would have a sense of not only purpose in life, but all of our other loves would be after that and in proportion to our ultimate love in you. We thank you for what Christ Jesus has done. We recognize its profound implications for everything. And we pray that you would guard our tongues as we speak of your love, uh, that we would not speak of, of it as a light thing, that your son died for us, that we would not take it flippantly, but we would not only, we would take it reverently, that we would speak the name of Jesus reverently and what he has done for us reverently, and we would shake and tremble at your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for what he did for us upon the cross. Fill us with the hope and joy and love of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name.